Welcome to the Carl Reader Show. So today on the Be Your Own Boss podcast, I am delighted to have James Phipps. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of James, he's had an incredible journey from council estate to taking a business with 50,000 profit to one and a half million profit, exited and he's doing some wonderful things for charity, but probably more importantly, his family. So, James, tell us, who is James Phipps? Um, hi, um, James Phipps is a, a, a kid who grew up in Swindon, and um, I always had this dream by the age of 40 to be retired and spend my life helping people, and I've luckily, gracefully managed to do that now. So. I'm involved in several businesses, involved in buying and selling um, several businesses as well. And that's enabled me to um, learn a lot about the world in business, make a few quid, um, but also set up the charitable foundation to hopefully try and show my kids the world that I'd like them to grow up in. Fantastic. So, James, what I'd like to do, first of all, is talk a little bit about your um, journey. So, in terms of business, taking a business from 50k to one and a half mil, yeah. that is an exceptional achievement by anyone's books. Yeah, that's what we all try to do. Yeah. Um, tell us, Excalibur, how, how did that journey take place? So, I joined um, this little mobile phone shop from college. Um, I remember walking past and... Um, there was a sign in the uh, window, this tiny little shop in Swindon, saying sales assistants wanted in this shop. So I walked through the door and uh, happened to be the owner in there and said, uh, I saw your advert, could I have a job? He said yes. I basically started the next day. So I've still never done an interview in my entire life. I've never done a CV in my entire life. So I, I find it hard giving people advice on those two bits. Um, but, but I remember getting thrown in the deep end and I just thought, these mobile phones in 1998, they might go somewhere. Turns out that they did uh, um, go quite a long way and everyone ended up buying them. But, but at that time, it was you know going digital and it was all very exciting. So um, I earned a few pounds, went up in every single role inside the company, got to 2010, had an opportunity to be part of a management buyout, um, which I ended up taking over the whole company over the next um, four years and um, and completely owning all of the business. And from that point, really 2014, for the last four years, I've managed to um, make it a Timestop 100 employer, an investor in people, a uh, gold level, um, won numerous awards for um, charitable um, endeavours. And really, that was where the sustainable profit growth came from trying to focus on the team and the people. We actually sell pretty much exactly what we sold before. We just made sure we had an amazingly motivated, happy bunch of people who loved coming into work. And funny enough, the profit ended up coming at the back of it. Fantastic. So we'll touch on the people later because that's an area of business that I think it, it's starting to get more and more attention, but not necessarily yep. the attention it deserves. Yep. So I would like to bring that up later. Um, but in terms of the MBO, if you don't mind, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper Absolutely. into the process of the MBO. You know, yep. I've, I, I actually took pretty much the same journey as you, James. Yeah. Um, even insofar as the year, I believe it was 2010, that the MBO was signed off. So I, I've been there. Um, yeah. In terms of the MBO, I believe that a number of the listeners, whilst the show is entitled Be Your Own Boss, but a, number, you know, a, a large proportion of my audience are small business owners or perhaps interested in being in business and yeah. will either be looking at an MBO for themselves as an employee or yeah. as a succession plan for others. Yeah. 
did you force the hand of the MBO or was it something that was offered to you? Um, no, it wasn't. And I've, I've sat now both sides of the fence um, and more than once as well. So I, I've got quite a good view of it. Um, it was an opportunity of two 50-50 shareholders and sure. one wanting to move to America. Um, and also, I think, a crossroads of the business. And I think every business gets to that crossroads mm. of saying, you're in a cycle now to get into the next cycle is probably another, let's say, five years of investment and you know working your, your rear off. Um, and actually, people have really got to have the appetite for that. And I think in the truest sense, for, for age and lots of other reasons, um, those owners um, had got to that point where they didn't quite fancy that next cycle that they were about to sure. go into. And it's also, it's not just about the time. Sometimes it's about the motivation as well. Sometimes the energy and um, the input that you can give to the business naturally diminishes over time and fresh blood bring with them new ideas and a new way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, look, business business is hard, right? You know, anyone who owns a business will tell you. It's like parenthood. You can't explain to someone who hasn't got kids. James, I'm only 21. You know, yeah. (laughs) You can't explain to someone, you know, what it's like. And I think if you go into business and you are, as a business owner or someone running an organisation, giving it 80%, it's not enough. And you owe that to your team and you owe that to your family to then recognise that. And I think it was great for them that they'd recognise that at that point. And truthfully, the reason I have then done management buyouts on um, more than one business now is because I recognise that in myself. <laughs> so you have to practice, you know, what you preach um, on the other on the other side of the equation. Okay, so um, going on to the team now. Um, if we start by looking at where the team was at when you um, when you actually did the MBO. So that was at fifty k profit. Um, how many team members were there at that point? So we actually um, we actually had a sixteen million pound turnover business. What were um, you doing? <laughs> and the first thing, uh, strategic real decision was getting rid of nearly twelve million pound of that business. Okay. So in a crazy way, think of the Gordon Ramsay. Your menu's yes. too big, right? That's exactly the conversation, Fantastic. and it really was less is more. So as part of that. Um, numerous directors took parts of the businesses with them sure. um, and I just got left with what was in some ways the smallest proportion but the um, bit that you wanted but it was the bit that I saw um, in the future was where growth could come from and sustainable profitable growth could come from so I think there's a real thing in business where people still have that turnover thing right yes how many people work for me what's my turnover what's my other piece and one part of it was a distribution business and I looked at for me I look forward and go who can I aspire this business grows who can we aspire to be and actually one of them was um, uh, Peter Jones Dragon's Den has the biggest kind of uh, businesses called data select in that world and I think at the time forgive my exact numbers it was a 300 odd million I think turnover he was making a couple of million profit on a Mm -hmm. 300 odd million turnover business so I went so if we were to grow this disproportionately and be hugely successful in inverted commas if that is what it's a, it's so, a huge risk when you're running at those ratios you, you just need to look at um, John Lewis group so I don't know if if you're sad as me and read the business news but um, John Lewis are operating at a fantastic turnover their profit was tiny yeah I, and uh, it, all it takes is one less product being sold per day and all of a sudden, they're out of business. Absolutely. I, and I think that, for me, was about saying, and I always think when you get into that management buyout, funny enough, it's your house and it's your family and it's your on the line. Yes. I wanted to try and be in something that was so robust and that could withstand another recession, quite frankly, another ability to those um, sector pressures that come in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think when you build something like that, coming from that angle, 
um, you take a slightly different approach. Sure. So you carved the business down to a few million turnover. Yeah. How many staff at that point? So we would or have after the carve down. Um, after the carve down, we'd have had I think around oh, about forty, fifty staff. Tricky point. Um. Um. And the problem was a lot of them were still... So we had a lot of retail shops still as okay. part of the organisation, which was a nightmare land to be in because the mobile phone um, network suddenly decided they wanted to camp on the high street, and you see them now in every high street. Sure. Um, but they'd encouraged the business over many years to go into the high street, so you're stuck with 25-year leases, mm. lots of retail staff. Suddenly, you've basically got nothing to sell on the high street, sure. you know, and look at Phones For You and all the others. I could absolutely see Phones For You coming down the line. Yes. Because when, when you get those players that say, it's very hard for you to add value, well, then why do you exist? So I was very, very keen on saying, and I was really open with the team, the direction of travel is going to be this. We're going to deal with only three product sets, IT, landline, fixed line, uh, um, and also mobile phones for small to medium-sized businesses. That is it. So anything else that doesn't sit in that land, we need to sit there and deal with. uh, And it was an open conversation with the staff. If you don't want to retrain or re-engage to do that because you love retail, then do you know what? We need to facilitate that, frankly, because... I can't, I can't give you a job for life because I know we're not going to have that job. And um, we ended up at the peak. We had 21 uh, retail units, I think, at the peak. And, and I, had, I ended up inheriting all of these leases that took years to unpick sure. and, and get out of. But do you know what? We did it in a responsible way. Could have done a pre-pack, could have done some clever accountancy legal work to try and get around it. But for me, it was about saying, look, we'll trade this ethically out. We solvently um, closed... Um, liquidated the one of the main trading entities even the window cleaner was paid for me it's sure. just about saying it's about sleeping at night isn't it i don't want anyone to come and knock on the door and go hey you know you did that 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 and that and actually do you know what most of our competitors took the angle of insolvencies and tried to shed in their liabilities but for me i think when you set those markers out if you're trying to live your life and asking the team and the businesses to have a set of values if you don't really live and breathe those values at some point down the line, it will come back to bite you. Absolutely. Okay, so you have this massive change going on. You had a, a, a good-sized team, but what I tend to see, and I've seen from my own experience, an awkward-sized team as well, uh, because you're too small to be big, but too big to be small. Yep. How did the team take this change? It wasn't... It, the, the problem was the team wasn't fit for purpose. Okay. And, the, and there was a real lack of a management structure at all, and that was the biggest challenge. So... I think for me it was about having some honesty and engagement with the team and say, look, at the time um, I was 30 years old, sure. right? I definitely hadn't been there and I definitely hadn't done it. So look, uh, and I also had um, my um, two-year-old had just been born and I had and, uh, and uh, I had a two-year-old, sorry, and my newborn baby just been born. So sleep deprivation was in the middle of all of that, etc. So I, I put my hands up and go, look, I'm going to make mistakes, but we are going to make mistakes together. We are going to learn together. And as long as we stay open and honest... And um, I think we, we had this conversation with one of the parts of the business that we, we'd shut down. And um, we actually had a conversation from the team going, are you guys all right? So you're having this conversation saying, in essence, this business is going to be you know, shut down, right? Um, uh, but they didn't want to be there. No, none of the team wanted to be there. They could see that it was an industry and a, and a business that was never going to be right, you know, no matter what changes that we made. And um, 
yeah weird scenario they're asking are you okay so i'm delivering you you know yes but actually are you, are you okay and that was the message that came back and i think that's where if you're honest and you tell people this is the vision this is the journey we're about to go on if you don't want to be on that bus it's absolutely fine and there is a statutory conversation but for me i've always taken the approach of every spare penny that we had should go above and beyond any statutory conversation because I can always try and earn more money, but I can't ever change that experience and that conversation Absolutely. later down the line. Um, I, I, again, look, be honest with you, um, I, I'd had to try and take the approach that we had our biggest earners in the business that weren't productive, they weren't motivated, that they want to be there. Um, and it was, a, it was a tough land. My IT team set my password as Terminator. Um, uh, uh, for the first six months which as my wife and friends and family will tell you they don't they don't see me as that in any way shape or form and I found it quite I found it hard I found it really conflicted you know numerous sleepless nights that weren't just baby related um, but what I had to stand back and say I think when you have that responsibility people's mortgages and their family let alone your own family on your own head you have to make the decisions that are the right decisions for the longevity of everyone. Definitely. And as you say, it's about making the right decisions, not the easy decisions. Because the easy decision would be to have the vanity business, 16 yep. million turnover. You know, look at me, I'm 30. I've got a 16 million turnover business, all yep. of these staff. Yep. Um, but in five years' time, that would have been no good for you. So that was the hard stuff. And I'm sure there was plenty more in that journey of, of the hard yeah. stuff. Yep. Um, now, if we look at going forward, so the journey from 50 to one and a half, yeah. Um, what would you say was the key ingredient of that journey? The key ingredient is getting the right support around you. So what I tried to do was run the business in a way that didn't require me. Okay. So I set the challenge to the team of, I want to take summer holidays off with my children. Sure. I, I've got one opportunity to see them grow up, and I'd like them to know me and know me very well, and hopefully ideally love me as well. And therefore, if I work backwards from that point, you should be a good enough team that don't need me. You should be talented. I should have people in this business that uh, and around me that can do my job and probably hopefully do the job better than me. And that was the key ingredient. It was really hard to try and find people that were the right time in their career that wanted to join that journey for all the right reasons. They weren't mercenaries, and I'll call them in inverted commas. Sure. They bought into the values of the business and they saw what we were trying to get into and they wanted to put in as much effort as I did. And... Actually, for me, when I sat in front of them around three, four years ago and said to them, look, I want this to be another management buyout. I, yes. want, I want all of you to, to win from this, not just me. Yes, I'm personally out on the limb for it, and me and my wife should sit there and see some payback for that. But actually, this for me is not about that. This is about taking a business from A to B and making it sustainably successful and ultimately, hopefully, a, a stand-up business in terms of doing business the right way and um, you know by trying to get you know top finance director by trying to get a head of HR who was unbelievably talented that helped us you know take what we saw as our values but put it into practice sure. in processes and how we went into things and hugely insightful I took on um, you know a chairwoman um, I had a non-exec director that non-exec director now four years later is now the CEO and has bought the majority shares of the business so for me it was even at that early sprinkling it was having the plan that everyone knew about so when I so actually when you know when you become successful um, it's no it's no accident 
also, what I've identified there, which I think is a really um, great point for the listeners to hear, is that you've got a small business background. Yeah. You started as helping out at a small business. Yeah. That small business probably become a overgrown small business and you recruited in the right talent to actually take it to that next level to bring in the processes the procedures um even the the simple things like the roles and responsibilities i imagine um all of that stuff needs putting in place but isn't necessarily easy to try and re-engineer yourself if there's somebody who's good at it yeah it is and and you know what i, I think what I learned, see, at that time, I started doing tactical investments and spending time in other businesses sure. because I realized, actually, my view of the world was still a slim one. I've been there my entire adult life in this mm. business, right from college. So, actually, how would I know what good or great looked like? So, you said you read the business news. I read all the time. I mean, knowledge is power, right? I can't get enough knowledge in reading books and all those sorts of things to try and understand. Everywhere, there was one little nugget that I would go, sure. We should do this and we should take that, you know. Um, and I think, you know, I had one piece of advice, for example, was given to me of, James, you can't become a donkey sanctuary, right? And it was tough, you know, when you're getting chats like that, because I always wanted to look after people. I always wanted to try and do the right thing in inverted commas. But actually what I realized was it's not the right thing for some of those people if you can't fulfill their career aspirations. So actually, <laughs> if I if I knew... For us to be successful, well, they needed to also be successful. And actually, because they were, for example, wanting to work in retail and we were going to have no retail shops, well, actually, I could never make them successful no, in their no own... No, success is perhaps elsewhere. And that, that was the key of trying to make sure the people that came in knew where we were going to, wanted to go to that same place, because if they were then fulfilling their career aspirations, well, then do you know what? We were so likely to be successful in the overall kind of company aspirations. And by sitting there saying... I'm I don't I'm not a manager I'm the worst manager in the world right um and that's why I employed some amazing managers what I was was the leader yes and I think for me that's the key difference I get a lot of people who are saying why don't you do that James and why didn't you do this and I couldn't understand with that okay well because it's not my skill set it's not what I like doing but actually leadership is the bit that I see is lacking in most businesses they're very good managers but they don't lead you know and when you stand in front of the team and you give that honesty like you know I'd always say to them you know we should lick our wounds together we hurt together we succeed and we celebrate together if you do that as that business then Funny enough, every year that our numbers went up and they carried on going up. I never set a target for those numbers. It was never something I put out there and went, we're going to go and make this business this. I never said that. What I said is I want to create the environment that you all love coming into work. And you know what? As part of that, we should be successful. Absolutely, absolutely right. And yeah, we see it um, when, when you foster that right environment for people to have that autonomy and almost do their own thing as if it's their own business that's utopia for a business owner isn't it it isn't I, my wife always said to me and it always stuck with me of you never understand how lucky you are through all the stresses and the pressures and all the other stuff that you've had you've always loved going into work yes. every day you've always loved going to work and she said which in my world I never really sunk it in you don't understand how rare that is for mm. most people and I always thought Actually, do you know what? If I'm going to ever be involved in any business and anyone ever has a bad day, it can happen. But actually, I always say to people, if that happens two days in a row, we need to chat. 
because I don't want that effect on your family and your home life because, you know, if I bump into you in 20 years' time in Waitrose or Sainsbury's or Asda or wherever it might be, I don't want to be responsible for the misery of your 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever that decade, you know. You can't get time back. No. Um, So, James, what I'm going to do, I'm going to park the investments bit for the moment because you touched Mm. on the investments Mm. and I would really like to go into um, some of that story. But if we just bring it back to the journey of Excalibur Mm. and to the point where you stepped away from being CEO to chairman, um, was that at the same point as you sold or... Did you do no, that change before? No, no, it wasn't. So the so the plan was, um, like I said, the non-exec director had come in three, four years ago, who I'd known for several years, um, and there was always the conversation around when you finish doing a bit of the corporate gig and the private and the other stuff that you've done. I knew that we were ethically and values sort of aligned, sure. um, and it would need someone to come in with experience. You know, frankly, uh, on the business. Um, so that was always the plan. So that was set many years before. And I think it's a key thing because if that person then is used to the business, has seen the numbers, understands some of the people around, it feels very natural, very natural to move from that non-exec position into in a day-to-day role rather than I had made the mistake of bringing in people externally over my several years uh, as an MD um, who didn't really ultimately fit. Okay. And they weren't bad people, but they didn't quite fit the the way, you know. Sure. Um, and so that was stage one for me, non-exec, knowing someone could sit there and try and leave. And they it. had the longest job interview in the world, effectively. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And also, this is a two-way street, because if they're working in that environment for them, and they're taking that big step, putting their personal life, you know, yes. uh, investment into it, and their money, etc., then... You know, they've got to know what they're buying as well. Sure. And it's very hard in any due diligence in any business to really, really get underneath the bonnet, you know. Um, so that that was probably one key key marker that went into it. The second was um, the team knew. So the, the right-hand people that I had inside the business all knew the plan was for me to do a management buyout. Okay. I was always utterly clear I would never, ever sell the business externally. Had offers regularly that were of greater value but it was never about that for me. It was about making sure that if it's going to be based in Swindon, I knew that if I sold it externally, some someone would come in, frankly, buy the customers, buy the other stuff in their eyes and just rip it for, yes. for profit, you know. So that was never going to be something I sit there and try and do. And it's important that all the team knew that. Um, so when we did the transition, the CEO took over. It actually took nearly 12, 18 months for actually to do a financial transaction. Sure. But that, frankly, from the team's perspective, point of view, was irrelevant. They don't really care who owns it. Not really. Yes. They care about the effect on them day-to-day and the plan they're going into. So we had that sort of dual period of time, but where I've learned the lessons from me doing it from the other side of the fence was um, making sure that it was really clear you can only ever have one leader in an organisation and it's really awkward if you're stood there and the guy stood behind you has been the guy who's been associated to the business their entire adult life, who's been probably the person that's employed most of the people in the building, you know, and I work for you, not just the company in that conversation. So I try to manage that with all those lessons that I learned by saying, you know, actually, if you're the only leader, you're now stood at the front. I will attend the things I should attend to be seen to support you, but I am most definitely stood in the background deliberately. And I think 
it's quite hard motionally. It's oh, a, it really, you know, it really it's, is. Um, I know for myself, enjoying the sound of my own voice, running team meetings, but now having somebody who's running them for me and keeping it buttoned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wanting to wanting to dive in. Yeah. But you can't. Um, in terms of that process, so how long ago was that that you um, that step? So um, April this year, okay. the ma- majority shares were sold, um, and you had just before the Christmas the year before um, that the, the chief exec had um, come in in the interim, um, and we officially announced him in March, taking over in the CEO. So we we had just over a year officially, but unofficially he'd been around the building. Sure. And how often are you involved at Excalibur now? Um, so there's a uh, probably I don't know probably maybe once a week something like okay. that you know I mean it, you know it's one of those things that like yesterday we had um, you know relaunch of a, a sort of refresh well-being program mental health etc um, all the stuff that I love so you know I'm in the building for that I'm in the building for a board meeting I'm in the building for once a month get together any party I'm still you know kind of there so enough that the people know I've not disappeared off the face of the planet but also enough that the team know you know, um, the bus is being driven by someone else. So a semi-executive role, a semi-executive chairman, which it's useful for the listeners to get that picture of how Excalibur looks, because now we're at a point where you've got a day a week, um, let's say committed to Excalibur, but four days free. Yes. We've touched on investments, first of all. Yes. So um, tell me the investment journey. What was your first investment? Um, so my first one was in a business called Total Guide 2, okay. uh, based in, uh, again, in Swindon, um, a digital business with um, phenomenal uh, uh, female, um, Liz Ledger, who I'd met at um, a banking um, event, actually. And I've always done my investments on the basis of seeing the person, liking the person, and then almost, not irrelevant what the business and the idea is, but I invest in the person rather she's than doing it. She's a person, isn't she? she? In a good way. She's absolute whirlwind. And... Um, and do you know what? I learned so, so much from that. I was around about two years, I think it was. And, and for me, um, you know, look, I'm not particularly kind of the hip and trendy Instagram kind of era. I just missed that roughly in my, in my 30s. And, um, you know, I felt distinctly like the oldest person in that building when okay. we went out for a, for, a, for a do. But what it taught me was she had a very different leadership style. She had a very different way of um, engaging uh, in the business and some of the models that she had. And I think we both learned a lot from one another. I, di- I didn't do that to get a financial gain. I actually did that <laughs> to try and understand what does a minority shareholder role look like and sure. actually what, where are those boundaries? You and know? I'm curious as well about how you found working with another entrepreneur with their own ideas, their mm. own direction. Mm. How, how did you find that? Um, and was it a useful training exercise for uh, becoming chair of Excalibur? Yeah, do you know what? I, I actually used that investment, uh, um, and I had to explain this to my wife when, when we took back um, financially, there was no no gain I wanted out of it. Um, I used that as a, as a because I've never had training in my life per se, structured training. I used that as my own training fund. Sure. That's how I made that investment because for me it was about trying to say how do I learn to not be the main person in the building? <laughs> how do I learn to be that person who could add value but do it in a way that's not saying you should do this, right? And it was really hard for me, you know. guys. You know it's like when you're in a day-to-day business and you're used to sort of um, um, directing it, you know, um, especially strategically directing it. And, um, you know, we've 
uh, we've become great friends me and Liz you know after after the event and um I'd like to think she learned a lot I know I I took a huge amount from it of understanding what you can and can't impact inside a business in a in a limited time capacity and what you should or shouldn't really get involved in frankly and um uh, and it's absolutely it set me up for what I'd like to think have been you know better investments in either financial terms or um in understanding the bits that I should add value into and the bits that I I shouldn't and absolutely a great preparation for me in terms of um you know getting into the chairman role in not you know one entity and a few entities now um it, it was transformational that role for me okay and I'm, I'm conscious of time here it's been a cracking interview so far there's so much that i mm. want to bring up i'm going to ask you one more question on the investments mm. um before we touch on your charity work and member final rapid fire questions so of your investments and chairman roles what would you say the three biggest tips are that you could give the listeners if they're considering investing in an external business? Um, firstly, invest in the people you're looking at. Sure. Right? You know, I've seen some people with incredible ideas um, and um, not delivered because they didn't have the thing about them. And it's very hard to describe, but that tenacity, that resilience that you have to have in business, if they don't possess that as, as a business owner, as a business leader you will never be able to do it from the periphery, right? You know, point one. Point two is you have to have a genuine interest in that investment ongoing. So I think the the, the bit that I've had is those people, the investments know they can ring me. I don't expect them to ring me every day. I don't want them to ring me every day. But actually when they need me, I'm there. And thirdly, I think it's the ability of them to take the help and the advice from the people. So some of the investments I've done, uh, for example, did one in software, and the team that they've assembled that have all turned into investors is unbelievable. There is millions of pounds worth of payroll that are sat there now as advisors slash now investors. That chance of that business being successful is now multiplied by a thousand. So even if the actual idea, the actual software idea wasn't great, and I think it is, actually look at it and go, the odds of that being achieved... People will make it happen. Right? Because when you look around the room, you're like, oh my God, what a team that you've assembled. And I think that's their ability of saying, we're not here to know all about it, but we are the drivers for the business, but we need a lot of passengers with us. And that's the key for me. I've seen somewhere... I actually, for example, I did one, again, one of my second investments that I did was in a business where the person was um, determined in some ways, had some resilience and had a great product, but didn't engage others to come in. Mm. And it was, uh, just give me a check, just give me a check. And actually, the reality is, um, it's not enough. You need to have that wide pool of people, one, for sustainability, and two, for when the going gets tough, and it does in every business, especially in a new startup, if an investment is going in into a newer one, you know, you need to pull on those people as much as you need their money for that occasional phone call or going, have you ever come across this? Has this ever happened? You go, yeah, I've done that 20 times. It's no, it's no burning building. It's all fine. And, they, and then they relax, and then they get focused back on driving your investment, frankly. Um, and they're the three things. Brilliant. Okay, so I mentioned we'll come on to the charity side of things. For the context of the listeners, James and I had a good chat about charity beforehand, and I rarely, rarely allow sales pitches on here. But James, you can talk about your charity as much as you like. <laughs> tell, tell us about Unite Foundation. Um, 
so I set United Foundation up, um, co-founded it in 2016, and it was for young people in Swindon, Wiltshire, and also for a couple of projects we've got in Kenya. I always took that argument of, you know, focus on people at home before you help people abroad, so we sort of cut it right down the middle um, and tried to do both. I've got a massive passion for young people. I think they have an ability to surprise and to overachieve if you just give them the right environment to go and do it in. So, um, yeah, for me now, everything I get involved in, um, you know, I don't want any money for me. <laughs> money to go into that charity because I can help drive that yes. and, and make a real difference to the lives of thousands of young people in here and in Kenya. And I think, I think it's also part, when you say about the transition of showing your values, etc., but if you don't have enough of a focus when you start to stand back for a business... You can over-focus on the things <laughs> that you shouldn't get involved in. So it's not only is something that I love and I enjoy and have a huge passion for, but, but I think um, I've used it to try and um, show other business people that when you do these things, yes, they take time and yes, they take money, but they're intrinsically linked to the success of both you personally and also to the organization you know when you show your values in the, in the truest sense you know um, and the foundation is absolutely the example of how you can try and change the lives of young people um, and frankly some of those then come and ask you for a job and I've taken some of those on you know uh, um, for me it's just an ecosystem you can create which keeps on giving in lots of different ways and you know what it's doing the right thing James, we're going to bring it on to some rapid-fire questions. Now, those who've listened to the podcast will know that these are fairly templated, but I'm going to kick off with one that's unique to James. If you were to set up a mastermind group of three other people, who would you include in it? Oh, is this a sort of an international anyone? International, dead or alive? Oh, that's a dancer. Fictional, non-fictional? It's a very, very good question. So, um, okay, so... Richard Branson, I've always read all of his books and every single time there's a few pearlers that I've always pulled out from there um, and I think he's tried to operate in a sort of, sort of value set. Um, somebody passed away quite recently, um, Joel, Lord Joel Joffe. Um, you know, I think the work that he did by trying to set into what was Allied Dunbar now it's became Zurich of setting a percentage of their profits going into a charitable foundation was groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. And I think it absolutely, in all the conversations I ever had with him, um, he utterly influenced me in my, my career and my, uh, my life. Um, and do you know what? Probably Liz Ledger. And she'll laugh at me saying that. But because I've never met anyone like her, I don't think I will meet someone else like her. And I love her to bits for that uniqueness that she brings. Fantastic. What is the best purchase that you've made for, say, 50 quid over the last six months? God, 50 pounds? Yeah, I don't, up to 50 I, I, Do you know what? Oh, I don't know. So 50. not something that's out of reach to but it's something that pretty much anybody could... Um, oh, do you know what? It's really quite hard, that. Um, my, I'm not... So I don't like gadgets and stuff sure. like that. Um, my AirPods, which are slightly more than the £50 barrier. It's probably the only gadget I've ever had that I've taken great value from. Um, um, learning to do my first ever half marathon recently, um, you know, I, I lived on those things, um, trying to get me through it in some way, shape or form. Uh, less than £50. Um, it's quite hard. I think uh, a book. There was a book that I bought in the last year for my last holiday 
which was um, on the All Blacks. Okay. And it was... Legacy? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great... I mean, you've probably read it, but I think it was a... Again, you can never stop learning. I, I learn every day of my life. And when you read some of the bits there that the players have to clean the changing room up themselves after every game mm. to prove the point. Fantastic book on leadership. I will make sure that there's a note of that book and a link in the show notes for the listeners to, to actually get that. Um, and, that, and now it's a, a similar question. What is the book that you've recommended the most to other people? Oh, do you know what? That is such, that is such a hard one. Um, oh, really, really, really hard. Um, I'd still come back to the Richard Branson ones for me. So he has done three or four, and they're all slightly different. But if if you read... If you read them, you'll realise, for example, he got done for VAT fraud in in his first ever sort of real venture. And I think it's great for him to put his hands up to that and and make you realise that it was not all (laughs) plain sailing. Um, Um, It's an interesting story, actually, because you you read his book and there's part of it where you can have your back put up where he's claiming to be a self-made man with a family loan from Coots. But then on the other hand, as you say, he's importing records from overseas, not declaring the VAT. It's an interesting journey, isn't it? Yeah, and I, so I, I, I don't know why, but they've always they've always enticed me. And and actually, because I'm a firm believer of that, that guy comes over to me of, he's got an island in the middle of nowhere. He is happy in his own body. Mm. And for a lot of the people that I look at in business, I don't think they are happy in their own body. Well, do you know what? He's happy... Unless, and I've heard this from somebody who's beaten him at tennis, unless you beat him at tennis <laughs> on his island. I won't share who it was because I'll probably I'll probably be shot. <laughs> but yeah, if you ever get the chance to meet him, don't beat him. No, look, you, do you know what? We all have, we all have, there's that streak in business where you have to have that competitive streak, right? You know, you it's built inside of you where you don't like to lose. And my, my daughter, you know, hates it on sports day or plays a hockey game. She hates losing. And although my wife says, you know, be a good loser, be a good loser, bit of me says, okay, be a good loser, but don't don't love losing, you know. Actually, that's not a bad trait for you to have in life, you know. No one likes losing, but you should learn to lose gracefully, right? And there's a there's a difference for that. And um, yeah, I think he, he is now, you know, Richard Branson has still got that element of making sure, like with a rocket into space, he wants to beat right Elon to get the first rocket up there can we think you know that's what I love because you don't lose that drive no, no. But what he does do is says unlike Elon who's sleeping in a factory doing a piece I'm doing it from my island in the middle of paradise you know? and you know he's um, Richard Branson has managed to maintain that youthful energy I, I admire him for that uh, final one James what is the one tip that you would give to your kids um, to be happy because I genuinely think there are pressures, and even more so now that generations coming through with social media, etc., where you know there's there's um, this uh, appearance of life with the Kardashians and God knows what that they grow up with watching now. Um, just focus on being happy, and if you're not happy, change it. Fantastic, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'm just going to ask you if you can let the listeners know where they can find you. Um, uh, so I'm not on Facebook. Uh, and I'm not on Twitter. Um, uh, I know I'm okay like that, aren't I? But I am on LinkedIn. So if you look at um, James Phipps uh, with a title of Father to Two Beautiful Girls, um, then you'll find me on LinkedIn for that. Fantastic. James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. 
Thank you for listening to The Carl Reader Show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends. This podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, D&T Advisory, helping you unlock the magic in your business by adding value, not numbers. Find out more at www.team-dt.com.